Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's being driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Was DJ Bob a scene kid, a punk rock kid, any of those things? Well, I guess me and my guest co-host will explore that and more with our guest, Michael Tedder, author of the book Top 8, How MySpace Changed Music, available tomorrow wherever books are sold. We talk about the book, the use of music on the internet prior to MySpace, and so much more. I just love chatting with my friend, pop culture historian, Allison McLean Merrill. Check her out everywhere too, and enjoy this episode. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Bob. You got it. Yeah, this fits right into the pop culture realm that we're that we've been covering for the past 13 years. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. Bob started as a radio DJ when he was a teenager, which is super cool. He's had lots of interesting experiences and stories since then. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, like, cause most of my interviews are within like children's television and like weird pop culture stuff. So when people hear that I'm, like a punk rock and a MySpace <laughs> kid, they're kind of like thrown off. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are like two sectors that. Hey, the- we all we all have different interests. We all have uh, we all have we all contain multitudes. Yeah. So, Allison, this episode is partly your doing. <laughs> so, would you mind introducing our guest? Yes, I would love to. Michael Tedder is a journalist and the author of the upcoming book, Top 8, How MySpace Changed Music, which you can order or purchase in your bookstore on August 15th. He's written for Vulture and The Ringer and so many other incredible outlets. I'll let him tell us some uh, pieces that he'd specifically like us to look at if he would like. But I came across Michael's book because I love music. I wanted to learn a little bit more, particularly about the music that was popular um, when MySpace was in its heyday. So I'm really thrilled that we both get to talk with Michael today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me, Bob. And thank you for thinking of me, Allison. You got it. It's interesting. I was talking a little bit before we started rolling about how most of my interviews are not within this world. But even when I told, you know, even when I told Alex and Kim Bang that I was into or whatever, she's like, 
I didn't know the side of the side of you, so I'm really happy to kind of delve into this world a little bit with you. Okay. Uh, my first question for you, Bob, is when did you get on MySpace? I got on MySpace when I shouldn't have been on MySpace. I was 10 years old. That is a little young. Because I had two older sisters, and they were kind of of the MySpace generation. But right. I was also, as I was watching cartoons and mm-hmm. kick stuff, I was... The, I was the kid watching TRL and like right. MTV2 and and all of the things that teenagers would be doing at yes. the time. So MySpace was kind of the next step. But I guess my first question for you is why MySpace? Like, why did you want to cover this part of? pop culture that is so special to so many people well because it means a lot to a lot of people and the news came out about and i believe in 2018-19 that long story short myspace was sold to a company called specific media in 2012 they tried to relaunch the website after it kind of fallen into disarray didn't work got sold to another company, which was later sold to a different company. That happens a lot. Anyways, within all these transferring between owners, uh, everyone's user information was lost. That's millions of people's pages. That's millions of uploaded songs. That's basically an entire generation's worth of personal data. And more importantly, an entire generation's worth of memories. That stuff is just gone, which is heartbreaking to think about. So I really felt well, I should write a book to kind of bring back that era for people so we knew what was happening and what we've lost when we when MySpace went the way it did. So that's reserved that so that if I may be so bold, it's preserved for the record. So people won't forget about it again. And that is such a great thing to do because MySpace, like you said, if if nobody if nobody was smart enough to download this stuff or capture it, there is no record of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it positive for the DJ Bob show, but sometimes companies don't really understand what they have or why people like it or what's special about it. And that certainly seemed to be the case with uh, the people who purchased MySpace who didn't purchase it again and then sold it again and such. It's an interesting way of thinking these companies have. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Allison, is there anything that's on your mind? Anything you'd like to? Yeah. I talked with Michael a little bit about this earlier, but I'm actually the opposite of you both and that I had almost no firsthand experience with MySpace. So um, I grew up in the church. So maybe we would like go look up a Christian band on there or something yeah. if somebody was coming to town and they had a MySpace page. But I, um, I'm the opposite of Bob. I have one sibling who is significantly younger than me. So I kind of had the best of both worlds in terms of pop culture. I got some of the 90s kid stuff, but uh, my love for Disney Channel, I was watching it a lot yeah. longer with her. So um, all of that to say, you know, since she's so much younger, that translated to some of the places I was hanging out online as well, playing lots of fun 
flash player games and we would go on webkins which was basically a social networking site for children where you would buy a plush stuffed animal there would be a little code and you could transfer your physical stuffed animals into virtual pets that you took care of on there kind of like okay. a later version of neopets sort of okay um, and so i distinctly remember being kind of made fun of in like seventh grade in one of my classes at school i went to a private christian school and this girl made fun of me for like having a webkins or something she's like why don't you get a myspace or a facebook and i just didn't have any concept of really what was going on on these other sites so I did get a Facebook in high school. I do have memories of, you know, chatting with people on there. But I guess for me, MySpace is kind of like that bright, shiny object that I always was hearing about. I was getting like, you know, the, the songs that were popular on there. Kids were walking around and singing. So it wasn't lost on me that this was like a thing. I just knew some naughty things were happening on there and I was yeah. not to go there. So that kind of like scared me out of it. But it's so fascinating to uh, read about this huge culture and range of experiences that were happening there. It's funny you mentioned um, the church thing, because I definitely, if I had more room, would have focused a bit more on the tooth and nail era of emo, which for those who don't know, that was a Christian label that had both heavier bands like Under Oath. And I believe a band, you'd have to double check this, but there's a band called Copeland who kind of had that Jimmy World Death Cat for Cutie sound, but was more explicitly Christian. Uh, yeah, because it was an interesting time. And I know, but at the end of the day, you have the word count you have, you have the page count you have, you have to make some choices. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bob and I have talked about this, that we actually wanted to specifically bring up this Christian connection. I know Paramore specifically, I believe Haley Williams has tried to distance that group from being like classified in any type of Christian genre. I think Evanescence kind of like actually was on the Christian charts for a while. So it is interesting to me to think back on what groups sort of had like some shades of emo, but were Christian. I don't know if you're familiar with Barlow Girl. That's one that I listened to and um, they kind of have that. Yeah. No, that one. No, I did like. I remember liking Copeland. I didn't uh, realize they were like a Christian band at the time, which is fine, whatever. Um, yeah, I tried to get under oath. It's one of those things where uh, you try to talk to someone and it just keeps like not happening. But yeah, yeah I talked to someone who, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, John Frazier. He worked at Crank, which is one of the late 90s emo album uh, labels back when emo was really underground. Then he worked at... Uh, Drive Through Records, which is the label that gave the world newfound glory and a lot of a starting line, a lot of pop, pop punk bands. And he has some funny stories about how they would have these interns, which really is high school kids, would come over to the tooth and nail uh, office, not tooth and yeah, no, the Drive Through Records office, and just go through MySpace and go through the absolute punk website and like, like harvest people's email addresses, have print friend request them, and just kind of spam them like like our band, check out this band, uh, which today would like, I don't know if that would fly. I think, yeah, later he worked at Tooth and Nail and uh, he had some funny stories about hanging out with like some of those bands on the road. And some of them were very clean cut and others were not. That might not surprise you. <laughs> are we, yeah. Are we just going to bring up um, Drive Through re Records specifically because they were home to still one of my favorite bands called Hello Goodbye. Oh, yeah. They were, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they were sort of 
kind of pop, pop punk experiment. I don't know. They were kind of like synth rock kind of vibe yeah. going on. It was, yeah, they were great. And then, then there was like bands like something corporate and mm-hmm. even before, like brand new. They were, they were already around, but MySpace kind of brought them into more ears, I would say. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I had a story from John. It's in the book that the starting line, the lead singer, Kenny, uh, he was, I believe, 16 or 17. And there was going to be a contest in which you could win a date with Kenny. And uh, I don't remember what you had to do. I don't remember if it was like a random drawing or you had to like sign up for the listserv or something. But anyways, at some point that didn't go through because I think someone was like, actually, we can't auction off a date with a minor. That That's actually not a good idea. <laughs> But yeah, uh, more to your point, like the pop punk emo scene, drive through records, that stuff all existed before MySpace, which launched in August 2003, 20th anniversary. That stuff was around. But see, those fans were already online types. They were on LiveJournal. They were using Napster. They were using AOL and some Messenger. They are primed for MySpace, where it's other music fans and other scenes, they took a little longer to figure out what MySpace was. But emo and pop punk has always been a very underground style in, in indie rock as well. So those fans are a bit more used to using the internet to find the bands they liked that weren't on the radio and to find communities with each other. So once MySpace was there, they just kind of made MySpace their unofficial home. And they were the first, there was the first scene to really kind of find a foothold on MySpace. And I do believe the emo scene made MySpace bigger than it would have been naturally. And MySpace made emo bigger than it would have been naturally. The two really fed into each other. I mean, it was interesting. MySpace had their own record label for a while. Which they a did, MySpace Records. Which a lot of people don't know. There yeah. were some compilation albums like with the best of the band. I think I had a few of those. Um, so... What were kind of the challenges in proving that MySpace music was a good topic for a book? Because it's kind of a niche thing. So was it hard to kind of... Yeah. If you, if anyone out there is listening and they want to pitch a book, I say go for it. Follow your dreams, but be prepared to work very hard. And if you get a literary agent, the very first thing they'll ask you when you pitch a nonfiction book, and you'll be asked this question over and over again throughout the process. Why is this a book and not a magazine article? Why do you need X many pages to tell the story? And the argument I made was, well, the story of MySpace really is the story of the aughts. It's the story of when the internet first became a big thing and how it kind of crashed and fell. And how the internet went from being a place full of promise that that would level the playing field for fans and artists to becoming as corporatized and commodified as the internet is today. Uh, How do we lose our way? A friend of mine who looked at my pitch and gave me a lot of notes, who was very generous with his time, he said, just remember, you are writing a rise and fall narrative. People love rise and fall narratives. Because we all like to believe 
that if we got fame, if we got success, if we got things we wanted, we'd be able to handle it. But the majority, but the truth is most of us, we make mistakes. We kind of get arrogant or insecure, or we lose sight of what's important and we blow it. Most people, when they get that level of success, especially if they're young, most people tend to blow it. That's just kind of like human nature. But that story is infinitely compelling to people again and again. Absolutely. I, and it's such a unique viewpoint because when people, I was telling people I'm doing an interview for a book about MySpace music and they're like, what? Why? Mm-hmm. Like, how is that a book? But the book is so layered and there's so many different voices and so many different types of people and different the 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 idea of not only being a user of iSpace but, but, but being a creative during this time and discovering this platform must have been electric for the creative person. Yeah. I mean it was the first time and thank you very much for the kind words. What MySpace did was, I mean, message boards have existed since the late, since the mid '80s, mid to late '80s. The internet's been around since the '70s. When the internet started, it was mainly for research colleges and the military. And then in the '80s, it became a bit more not popular. It became a bit more widely used amongst the tech industry. And then the '90s, you had AOL, you had message boards, you had listservs. But if you were on a message board in the '90s, you were either, and I say this with love because I'm both these things, you were either, well, not mono, you were either like kind of with it and cool and on top of things, or you were kind of dorky. Uh, and those are both great things to be. But you just kind of had to know like, all right, which is the right message board to be on? Like there was a big message board, big in quote marks, in the indie rock emo community called Makeout Club. And that's where people would like talk about Death Cat for Cutie all day, or they would talk about the Smiths or they would talk about like what bands were in their scene. And this website was popular in like the late nineties or two thousands. And that's great. But what MySpace did was you didn't have to be an internet kid. You didn't have to know the cool message boards or this or that. You could just log on and instantly you're plugged in and you can figure out, Oh, this is what the internet is. This is how you find people. This is how you find new bands. This is how you meet friends. This is how you, meet dates. This is how you do this, that like MySpace just did took what was already there and made it accessible. Like there's lots of bands that are like, they weren't the first band to do pop punk or they weren't the first band to do emo, but they took something that was out there. They made it their own and they made it easier for people to understand. That's what MySpace did for the internet music community and the internet in general. Uh, Michael, one thing I wanted to ask you about is your companion playlist to Top mm-hmm. Eight, which if anyone wants to go find that, it's on Michael's website, michaeltutter.com. I'll put it in the description as well, too. Yes, you, yeah. can, also it, you can also find it on Spotify. Um, I've been having so much fun listening to this. I'm a little over halfway through, so well, the, fun part of, well, the fun part about that is I'm getting into some of the hip-hop songs. I was yeah. dancing around to the song Mikey earlier by the Cool Kids. Is that right? Yeah, great song. And 
one thing that strikes me is because like sometimes I'm just listening to them and other times I'm looking up the lyrics and one that I was listening to last night, um, the square peg song by the bacon Andes. Oh yeah. I was just floored by these lyrics. It's like, I got you an anklet in a box and then here's my heart in this box. And so it's just kind of cool to take songs like this from your playlist and actually see exactly how um, the emotional nature in the word emo and in this identity and genre plays out. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you have curated this playlist and what was um, enjoyable about doing that for the book. It's funny. uh, For those who don't know, the Vacant Andes were the very first band that Dashboard Confessional songwriter Chris Caraba was ever in, or one of the first bands. They were a South Florida Boca Raton punk band with a bit of a ska influence on some songs. And uh, that was back when Chris was really young. I think he may have been a teenager. And it's funny, before I made the playlist, I'd ever actually listened to a Vacant Andy song. It's like, you know, even back then, he knew how to write songs, he knew how to sing. He was young, he was figuring it out, but he, he definitely, you can tell even then, there was something. And then later, it's funny because the vacant Andes were signed to a very small record label called Fiddler, uh, which is an outgrowth of a zine called Fiddler. Fiddler Jones, maybe? Yeah. Which was run by a, a young woman named Amy Fleischer Madden, who was a teenager at the time. She's was at a magnet school. She made websites. She made zines. And she started record labels because she loved the she loved the vacant Andes. She loved her local scene and wanted to put the records out. Then Chris Caraba was in some other bands. And finally, as a solo outlet, after a rough breakup, he started Dashboard Confessional. He wrote albums like the, the Swiss Army Romance and The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most, which caught on word of mouth through Napster and AOL and was kind of, I think, one of the first bands to break solely through Napster. Yeah. But yeah, about the playlist, you know, I basically went through... And every song I mentioned, unless I specifically said, I think the song is bad or if the song is by a person who has been accused of abuse, uh, which unfortunately happens to some artists in the uh, playlist or some artists mentioned in the book. Uh, If an artist was abusive, they were banned from the playlist. Of course, I wasn't going to support them in that way. So, yeah. But other than that, I think pretty much every song I mentioned in the book is on the playlist. And by and large, again, excluding abusers, every artist I mentioned in the book gets at least one song. And if they're one of the main characters of the book, uh, they get several. But yeah, I hope people who are maybe a little only casually familiar with the music covered in the book or think of uh, MySpace is only one type of thing, get to discover some, uh, some artists they weren't familiar with. Yeah. Absolutely. hundred songs, people. Go listen to it yeah. on Spotify. Yeah. Hour, <laughs> hours worth of stuff. And it's, it's so good because it's basically like the equivalent of like a burn CD. Carefully. So I just love the this term is overused, but I love the aesthetic of it. Like I think oh, it's, it's so yeah. It's such a great, it's it's a companion piece, but it's a companion piece for the time, and it works, 
melding the past with the future, which is streaming. And I feel like I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say, Bob. Yeah, it's a nice composite of just a range of human life, honestly. I mean, both for someone like me who isn't familiar with a ton of these songs and someone who lived it. Because I think it's easy, if you were outside of it, to think of emo and the scene and some of the really popular stuff to come out of this MySpace era. It's easy to think of somebody kind of just like sitting in the corner with their like swoopy bangs and their eyeliner and being sad. And that's a part of it. And like, that's a part of life, but there's also songs from this sort of subset that you can dance to and that are super fun and like capture your other emotions and joy and things like that too. So it's really nuanced. And I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, the book mainly focuses uh, first on, what happened with the website? I talked to a lot of people who work there, who are the behind the scenes, why the website uh, got as popular as it did and why things fell apart. But I also focus on all the musicians who broke from the website. I mainly focus on the emo scene just because that's the thing. In the public imagination, people associate with MySpace now, but, and also because of word counts and page limits, I had to make some choices. But I definitely try to tell the story of other artists who broke through the website. And certainly there was a lot of, very young singer-songwriters who broke through the site. Uh, both Kate Vogel and uh, Colby Calliott were teenagers. They were high school students living yeah. in Ohio and I think California, respectively. Who And Colby, she wasn't even a MySpace. She wasn't an internet person at all. She was more of an outdoorsy, going hiking type of woman, lady. So, uh, But her friend made a MySpace page for her and she was surprised that her song, Bubbly, blew up as big as it did. Kate Vogel, like she played in bands and high, she made music and she's a high school student, but she didn't really tell anyone because she was too shy. But then, you know, her songs got really popular online and Tom Anderson approached her directly and said, hey, do you want to be on MySpace Records? And uh, while MySpace Records had kind of a spotty track record in terms of actually breaking artists, with Kate Vogel, it worked. With Kate Vogel, it completely worked. And then she was upstream to Interscope on the next album. It's so interesting you say about MySpace success stories because one of the, one of the first bands that I found through MySpace was Panic at the Disco. Oh, cool. And... Nobody knew who they were, and this might have been around a month before the first album came out. And then mm-hmm. later that June, I write, I write, it's not tragedy everywhere. So, like, really, that yeah. kind of hipster approach, kind of like I knew them when, but it, but we all knew them when because MySpace music was such a community driven uh, platform. Oh, yeah. Like, Panic and Disco is a crazy story. They started, they were just high schoolers in uh, Las, uh, Las Vegas. They first started as a Blink-182 cover band, which is fine. That's actually a fine thing for teenagers to do is start a cover band, learn how to play together, and then eventually write your own songs. And once they did that, they formed Panic, writing their own songs. And they actually just found Pete Wentz's live journal, Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy, and sent them a link to their MySpace page. And he basically signed them. Uh, he went, he visited them at their rehearsal studio and signed them. 
And it was a weird position where because they were associated with Pete Wentz, because they were all so young, and because they got popular so fast, uh, they, on their first album, there's a lot of songs talking about haters and people who doubt them. And usually that sort of thing doesn't really happen or like talking about how like fame is weird and disorienting. And usually bands don't write about that stuff until at least the second album, but they were a microcosm of just how quickly MySpace was working, how fast it was for a band to find a huge audience online. And then of course, like on the second album, Pretty Odd, they tried to change their sound from being less directly dancey emo to being a bit more like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And some of their younger fans just didn't kind of understand what they were going for. So the record didn't do as well. And then the main songwriter, Ryan Ross, left the band. But Br- Br- Brendan Urie kept going, kept bringing other people to work with. And uh, there's, I think actually they broke up last year, but... Bands don't really break up anymore. I'm sure they'll be back in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that they they broke up. Or I think Brendan left because he started a family. And yeah, you know, I, I think he's busy. Also, I know he does. He's also become a Broadway actor in recent years. And like he's busy on like Twitch, which is kind of like a my space type world for gaming so every couple yeah. of years there's there becomes this meeting place for different types of people it's really interesting how that works yeah i'm aware of twitch i never really use it i don't play video games as much as i used to when i was younger i you know and the one thing the one thing i do want to say before alex can share her uh Whatever her thought is that MySpace is such community driven. So, do you think that it was really a lot of people's first time making friends solely on the internet, aside from chat room, chat rooms, and the like? Definitely. Like again. People had been using chat rooms before and had been making friends on other websites, but you just had to know which ones they were or stumble upon them. Whereas MySpace has made it very easy that even if like if you were a kid in a small town and no one you knew liked Weezer and you didn't know what the cool websites were and you didn't really know what AOL was, you could just go on MySpace and start making friends. If no one in your school liked the bands you did, you could find people who did. You can make online friendships. And you know, sometimes those things didn't work out so well. There's definitely younger women who are preyed upon by uh, people who with ill intent. But there's also lots of people who made like lasting friendships to this day. I mean, there's people who got married off the website. There's people who formed bands because like, oh, you're in my town and you like these guys. Let's play together. Yeah, it was definitely a place where so many people made a lot of friends, especially people who are maybe shy, a bit socially awkward. Who maybe weren't good face to face, but they could like compose their thoughts and kind of sound funny and witty uh, online while typing. Yeah, it was a it was a lifeline for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So again, this this is where I have a different perspective, but very much in line with this topic of community and meeting people online. Um, I wasn't meeting anybody online until a few years ago. If I was a teenager and I was talking to them online. 
I probably already knew them from real life, from church or from school or, or something like that. So I think it's interesting to see, like, like we're talking about, where those types of online friendships can flourish. And I've met people through Instagram and a couple of people through Twitter. But I actually want to take it way further back um, to a site that Michael talks about early in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about the well and how that is an important part of this early social media history that you also lay out in the beginning? Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the well was, it's always hard to say something's the first because you'll say that and someone will come out some really obscure little uh, person or website and be like, no, we were the first. But I will say the well was one of the first before we, they were called message boards. They were called bulletin board systems. And they were extremely early uh, message boards, very crude, not the foul language kind of way. It's like very like not technologically uh, advanced, very often like black and white back on like 80s Microsoft era computers. Uh, but they they did exist. You either had dial up, you mostly had dial up. High speed internet was, was really not a thing in the 80s. But yeah, you could talk to people you could like play online games. Like you could play online chess. Uh, if any of the listeners out here have ever heard of a TV show called Halt and Catch Fire, a wonderful show about computer programmers in the 80s and the birth of the internet. It was a lot like that. The Well was one of the first forums. It kind of organized things. And it's funny because even back then, even in the early 80s, uh, they had a strong message, a message, a strong musical connection. Uh, one of the first groups to have a strong online fan base was the Grateful Dead, because uh, their fans have always treated the band as the center of a community. So even in the '80s, on these Baltimore systems, uh, Grateful Dead fans would trade bootleg concert tape. Just being the 80s, they were literally cassette tapes often. Wow. So a similar question, what would you consider either the first music blog, or at least the first one that kind of went on the map and had any sort of influence? Oh, uh, yeah, I can actually answer this one. So long story short, I turned in a very, very long version of this book, which is around close to 900 pages. And wow. yeah, uh, I'm not well. No, it's just kind of like, I'm going to do the best job possible on this book. So I'm working on a follow-up book with stuff I've cut out of it. But I covered a lot of what could be called blog rock and indie rock, which are like non-emo bands that also blew up through the internet. I talked to people like um, Voxtrot, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, The Pains of Being Pure at Heart, Symbols of Guitar, all great bands. And you can look forward to a book about blog rock and the music in Ott's internet and indie rock in a couple of years. Anyways, but I did talk to a man named Matthew Perpetua, whose blog flux blog is, he says the first MP3 blog. Uh, now maybe some people out there might claim otherwise, but they, it started in 2002. It's still going today. Very often you could download an MP3 and he was one of the first people to write about say, Animal Collective or LCD Sound System. And I interviewed him for the book. And I also interviewed my, I love Matt. He's a great guy. I also interviewed Scott Lapatine, 
whose website, Stereogum, is still going strong today. Still the best music website, if you ask me. But yeah, he also started in 2002, a little bit after uh, Fluxblog. So those two really kicked off the music blog movement. And uh, St- Stereogum, like they're, they're basically a music magazine online. Whereas Fluxblog continues like very much being a blog. Like every day, Matt writes about one song. And yeah, they're still going strong, uh, but support Stereogum support independent uh, media people. But yeah, those would be the two in my estimation. But you also had so many great blogs back then. And still still today, you have Brooklyn Vegan, you had Nah Right, which was a hip hop website. I interviewed, uh, you had uh, Aquarium Drunkard, uh, Gorilla versus Bear, all the all sorts of great websites. Cool. Obviously, there were so many ways to get MP3s at the time, but again, these blogs and these platforms were such a unique place because there were times where these files would not appear anywhere else. So you were oh, yeah. like, you were literally like the golden child because you had this stuff. Yeah, like on Napster, it's funny. Uh, like my parents' home computer pff, a million years ago, I had so many songs downloaded that just lost the world because I can't even find them anymore. Uh, like there's unreleased songs would just leak online. And one I love, which I cannot find was, this is not emo, but in 1993, there was the Judgment Night soundtrack, which rap and, which rap and rock artists would collaborate in songs together. And the band Rage and Machine did a song with Tool, which was never released. I found it on Napster and I can't find it anywhere else. It's just gone. But yeah, there's lots of stuff like that. Uh, yeah, just rare recordings, concert bootlegs, and yeah, all that stuff. And like Napster really kind of made it eat like MySpace. Like you were able to download an MP3 in the 90s if you knew the right website, if you knew the right forum. It wasn't easy, but you could do it. And it's especially popular with tape traders for, again, The Grateful Dead or Fish, things like that. But Napster made it easy for anyone to figure out how to download MP3s for better and for worse. Uh, there is good sides and bad sides to that. Um, but yeah, so just as, so in a way, Napster kind of primed people to listen to music on the internet and look for new bands on the internet. So on MySpace arrived, people were ready. So I, I asked the hard hitting questions on this show. So. Okay. Hit me. What was your first MySpace profile song? And if you can remember, how long was it there? Were you one that kept the song there for a while or did you switch them out? I definitely switched it out. I don't remember the exact song, but it was early 2004 when I joined. So I'm willing to bet... It was probably either The Sound of Settling by Death Cab for Cutie or the song uh, I think it was maybe even Nothing Gets Crossed Out by Bright Eyes. Those are both great choices. Thank you. Great, great choices. Going away from the book for a little bit. 
Yes. And you, you're a writer. You're, you've had thing. You've, you've had a lot of things published over the years. So what is the most difficult part for you about being a creative person and, and liking so like, like niche things for some people. These are things that generally people don't care about. (laughs) Right. The thing is you can find people who do like, I write a lot. I write for a lot about music. It's not the only thing I write about, but I've written for band, I've covered bands for stereo gum that they aren't huge, but the people who love it, love it. Like seven years ago, goodness, seven. Wow. Uh, I went to Massachusetts to hang out with an emo band called the hotel year. I hung out near the forest. They shot their album cover. The album cover is very infamously like a bunch of naked people. Like I hung out at the least near Christian. I hung out at Christian. I hung out at their house for a couple hours. We talked about their album in depth and look would Rolling Stone let me write 4,000 words about this very culty band who don't even have a gold record. Probably not, but stereo gum did. So yeah, you just have to find the right outlet. And uh, but the most difficult thing cannot just be, if especially if you're a freelancer, just getting a editor to take your pitch. <laughs> to which my only advice is: be resilient, be persistent, and don't take it personal if they say no. Just have some, have a thick skin. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kind of. I'm not in that yeah. world, but I, you know, Allison basically lives in that world. So I'm learning through her and I'm sure you guys yeah. can swap stories about <laughs> the most difficult pitch of all time or yeah. <laughs> the one you really wanted. And that seems like a crazy world yeah. to be in. Like, having this idea and then suddenly told no and then having to go back to the drawing board so can either of you kind of share a story of that caliber i don't mean to put you on the spot but i just want to austin do you want to go first Hmm. sure i mean i'm still very new at this basically i was doing an hourly editing job um, at for static media which has a lot of different websites And in the spring, I decided I was ready to pivot into freelancing while also uh, working with a literary agent and trying to sell a book project. And it definitely has its ups and downs, but I do enjoy freelancing for a lot of different reasons. I like having the creativity to come up with different ideas. And probably, I, I guess, like my big story of persistence over the summer is, I guess, just thinking of pop culture topics that really meant something to me trying to find access to the resources that I needed in order to make those stories happen. Uh, For example, I interviewed Raven Simone for Vanity Fair, and it was a a great experience, um, happened uh, shortly before the SAG after strike. And I guess just uh, trying out different muscles, different kinds of pieces, and um, I don't know, just challenging myself, but also recognizing what what is in my wheelhouse, what I feel like I could do a really good job at, what new skills I can acquire. So I'm still very much yeah. um, learning. But I would tell people, if you have a pitch field. and you get turned down, don't take that as a no. Take that as a, 
not here or not yet, not right now. I've had pitches that like I had to pitch three different places and eventually got picked up. I've had pitches that like didn't get picked up right away, but a couple of years around later, I got around to writing it. Um, let me think of a good example of this actually. Like I spent like I'm uh, in 2015, I wrote a story where I went to Philadelphia for Stereo Gum. And at the time, Philadelphia, I think it still is, was really establishing itself as like the epicenter of punk and indie rock, basically because it's very cheap to live there. So a lot of bands that used to live in Brooklyn moved to Philly. And I wanted to do that story for a while because there's so many bands I love from that town, from like Curvile, The War on Drugs, Wachahachi, uh, Modern Baseball, uh, all kinds of great people. Um, but like the, uh, the story, I pitched it and didn't really get picked up at some places I pitched. But eventually, Stereogum was like, yeah, we'll do that. And it was the first big story I ever wrote for Stereogum. And like, I've been tight with those guys ever since. So yeah, just like, if you believe in a story, just keep going. Don't don't take no for an answer. Yeah. I think one of the hardest things is <laughs> not necessarily when you hear a no, but when you just don't hear anything. <laughs> It happens and, and that's really tough, but you know, it's sometimes yeah. you turn around and you find like the perfect place for it where it was always meant to be. So that's pretty cool. But um, I think Bob, when is this going to be out this episode? This is going to be out on the 14th. Okay. All right. Well, if it's not out already, I can tease that I do have, a piece coming about the cheetah girls and i was able to actually use my music degree and write about some of these wonderful pop songs that kind of started that little era of disney channel history so that's one of the other things i'm excited about and i guess like something like that that's a bigger reported feature that uh takes a lot more planning but allows me to get to talk to lots of different people that's super fun and so yeah again just trying different things out and it's all a one big learning experience yeah, definitely. And I think the the kind of idea where we all cross over is one of my favorite things to do within my line of work doing the podcast is like throwing people off when they know you for one specific type of thing. For example, this interview, because people don't know this side of me and what I'm into and it's like um when you can show people other sides of you and what you can do that's always fun yeah well I'm very happy to be part of giving helping to introduce the world to a deeper understanding of DJ Bob and that that is the title of this episode no um yeah Bob I have a question for you yes was DJ Bob a scene kid? <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there was a point in time where literally my profile song on MySpace was by this guy. What, what were their names? Adam and Andrew, yeah. and they had this song called Emo Kid. And it was so, like, it was kind of like talk, singing, like, kind of rapping. And it was like, just like, not me. So, but it was to the point where most of my playlist was 
yellow card and something corporate and head automatica and mm-hmm. like bang that when I saw them on MTV or something, it would be like a year or two later. I'm like, um, what are they doing here now? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I thought they were mine. I thought that was my band. But that's what happens. Like, I do think a lot of people back then wouldn't say, hey, I'm a hipster. Hey, I'm emo. Hey, I'm a scene kid. You wouldn't, you wouldn't right. say that. But usually when you deny those things, that's clearly, if you deny you are these things, that was very often an indicator you were these things. Not always, but often. It's like I- but what Kendrick, what Kendrick thinks to me is the term scene kid is more relevant because I was a scene kid, literally, and in age. And I'm like, the fact that I was exposed to this stuff so early kind of informed... Um, what I do now and it, yeah. being on the internet and learning that my spaces where most of us learn some form of code. Yeah, true. Yeah. A lot of people just by tweaking out their MySpace page learn what HTML is. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I wanted that scrolling text on my MySpace page just because it looked cool. Yeah. And I used to freak out when I used to be able to change the color with one letter. <laughs> it was yeah. In the co- it was so kind of people people were coding without even knowing what they were doing. Correct, correct. That's a great observation. I'm sure like I wrote in the book, I'm certain many people now have careers as a programmers, designers, software engineers, just because they got started in MySpace at a young age. They wanted to make their website uh, look cool. Mm. Um, So, Michael, one thing, I guess, looking at what are some, I don't know, examples that could be emo adjacent today, I want to talk to you about Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah. Because I feel like she is an accessible, maybe way in, not directly to emo but to some of those influences there have of course been tons of comparisons to Paramore so for someone who really liked the Sour album or even some of her newer stuff who are some I guess contemporaries that maybe even lean a little bit more into emo proper yeah if you like Olivia Rigo and Brutal is just a banger uh some artists you might want to check out especially if you like angsty women with a lot of emotions to get off their chest and who aren't, who aren't afraid to like get raw. Uh, you should check out the current album by an artist named Bully called Lucky For You. It's just like fuzzy indie rock banger after banger. It's just great. I think you would also enjoy uh, I'm sure at this point, you, if you like Olivia Rodrigo, you probably already know about Boy Genius featuring Julian Baker Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Dacus, but if you're if for some reason not, go pick up the album. It's just a masterpiece. Just wonderful harmonies, beautiful songwriting, and courtesy of Julian Baker, just great guitar leads. But also check out all three of those women's solo projects. Uh, what else? There's so much stuff. Um, there's a band called Scowl, who are a bit on the heavier side. But they're getting some attention right now because they're in a Taco Bell app. But they're great. The least near Cat Moss is just a force of nature. 
uh, defiant, willful, but she can also like really sing, like sing her heart out. And if you don't mind like listening to music by dudes, I'd recommend the band Military Gun, who are like a post-hardcore group, but they also had like extremely catchy songs. It's like really, like they basically make like impeccable melodic pop rock bangers and then attack them with the ferocity of a hardcore band. Just great. I'd recommend their album Life Under the Gun, which is out now. That's awesome. I have written like all of these down. That's great. And I was actually telling Bob before this, we need to have like an emo book club with you or like a music club (laughs) where we just focus on a little bit of the book and uh, this music at a time. I feel like we could have like 10 more of these conversations just zeroing in on different eras. Yeah. So um, Bob, is there anything in particular that you wanted to, to add in on that topic? Well, I I think and if you wanna go back to the predic like before Olivia Olivia Rodrigo, there were people on MySpace. A person that I would recommend is um Fifi Dobson. Yeah. Too. Mm-hmm. I uh I tried to talk to Phoebe for the book. I reached out to her and uh I never heard back. Like I reached really? out like their manager or publicist could be their floor manager or publicist. You know, it's just how it goes. Especially if someone hasn't been in the public eye for a minute, uh, any contacts you can find for a manager or publicist might be out of date or, you know, it might be like, well, my client doesn't really have an album out right now. So you're not really doing an interview. That's that sort of thing. But I tried, I would have loved to talk to her. Um, for all of our Disney channel fans out there who might be listening, little fact, some of you probably already know, Fifi Dobson dated Michael Cedar who was none other than Derek on the Canadian Disney Channel deep cut Life with Derek. And Fifi even made an appearance visiting on set of the 2008 Disney Channel games. Wow. So in case any Disney Channel people came in. What? (laughs) True. It's true. Oh, wow. I, so above all else, I am a pop culture podcast. So I am thinking this. What were your favorite um, TV shows and movies as a kid? Like, what were your what were your things that kind of influenced you? Because judging by just our conversation right now, like you you must have had some quirky kind of fun things. I'm um, being a bit older than the two of you. Uh, I was a huge fan of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Rest in peace. Oh, I was. Yes. Yeah. Rest in peace, Paul Rubens. You were genius. Yeah. Uh, I also really loved um, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which is a Nickelodeon show about just. I love that brother. show. Yeah. And I was obsessed with the show The Kids in the Hall, which ran on Comedy Central. It was like a uh, a sketch show for about these Canadian, Canadian right? Yeah. But I also like. When I was a kid, Comedy Central was around, but it was really just kind of like random comedy specials, the kids in the hall, and reruns of Saturday Night Live. And I watched a lot of that, and I watched a lot of MTV. And I think the first time I ever like was like, oh, this is a band, and I like this band, uh, was probably The Cure. Which is like, The Cure have always been the ultimate weird kid band. So, you know, that they were right there for me. 
Um, I have a question going off of TV. Bob, I think we've talked about our own TV shows on here or privately or both. Uh, but Michael, I want to know how you became a music journalist. Did you grow up as a musician? No. Is it because of, you know, your connections listening to music for so long? I'm just curious. And like, I always like to say I'm an, I'm an entertainment journalist because I've also covered film and television, but uh, yes, I've also absolutely. done my share of like business writing just because like that helps pay the bills. Um, I think it's good for writers to be versatile. But yeah, uh, my local paper, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and my local paper, the Orlando Sentinel, they had a section that teenagers could write for. It was called Rave. And it's like, just submit. And I was already on my high school paper because I realized I liked English class. I liked English and humanities classes better than all my other subjects. And I, I just liked, even enjoyed, I even enjoyed writing personal essays. So I thought, okay, well, I could probably do this. I applied, I got accepted, and I realized, okay, great. I want to be a writer. That's what I want to do. Uh, I just kind of felt the calling to it. And I was like, do I want to be like an English major or a journalism major? And I kind of chose journalism, went to the University of Missouri Columbia, which has the best journalism program in the country. Uh, other schools might say something else, but I, I, I back Columbia, I, I back Mizzou. And yeah, I just was on my student newspaper and I reviewed albums, interviewed bands, reviewed movies, wrote trend pieces. And I thought, okay, I just want to graduate and work for a magazine. And eventually I want to have books. And yeah, that's what I did. Awesome. Well, yeah, here you are and you have your book and you've made it. Oh, thank you so much. You're very kind. So everybody has their first interview that they always say, I was so nervous to do this. And here's the story of that first interview. What was yours, Michael? Wow, this is really going to date me. But the first band interview I ever did back when I was at the main editor was a briefly popular, and to be fair, quite good swing band called Squirrel Nut Zippers. Because in 1998, swing music had a moment. And I, re- I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, we had Cherry Poppin' Daddies, we had Brian Sessler Orchestra. And if you weren't there and you look back on it, you're like, how did this happen? But yeah, and I was very nervous, but I even really liked the guitar, like the guitar player or the singer. And like, he was very nice. I think you could tell I was really green and he just went along with all my questions. And uh, it's funny. Years later, when I still like in college, and I was working for, like a, uh, I interviewed Jim Adkins of Jimmy World. I'm sure I was like a little bit better of an interview, but I was still pretty green. I'm sure it was excruciating for him. And then later in 2019, I interviewed him for MTV when their album Surviving came out. Came out. And I was like, so I interviewed you about 20 years ago. I was really green. Thank you for being nice. He goes, you know, I'm just glad that you stuck with us that long. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's awesome. Jim Adkins is back very nice guy. That show is good. And it's, if I could, I'm, cause this is one of the first interviews that I've done where I, you know, it's just been another sector of what I'm interested in. Yeah. But as, as we're talking about people accepting and people being so understanding, there are very few times 
where people even, you know, in my email, I always reference that I have cerebral palsy. Just so, like, heads up, right. be in a wheelchair, yep. uh, vocal ability might be a little different, but there are very few times where that's a problem for people. And everybody is just so accepting of the work because of the work. And there's yep. no charity case and i'm so thankful for that that's the way it should be so we all go even though we have our everybody has their own physical or just personal hang-ups that make them who they are Mm -hmm. but if we could shine through that and kind of cut through the noise in our own way and then i say we've done a good job well i hope you feel like i did a good job today Perfect. <laughs> Thank you, Allison, for connecting us to this. You've been great. So are, yeah, of course. Before, before, before we wrap up, are, it, Allison, do you have any final questions, thoughts? I think final thoughts would be one that occurred to me today before our conversation was sometimes, like people say, you know more than you think you know. I think you've heard more than you think you've heard. Like listening to your playlist, I'll go, oh, well, maybe I didn't really know what this was or what this was called, but oh, I've heard this before. And I think that that um, recognition of, you know, getting like context that you didn't even realize that you had or finding like layers within yourself to connect with um, new understandings of music. It's all really fascinating. And so that this spiritual aspect is something I definitely want to do more research on. So Bob and Michael, I just want to thank you for opening my mind and allowing for the three of us to discuss different um, facets of creativity. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, Allison, thank you for all you've done for my book. This has been, this is our second interview. It's always lovely to talk with you. I appreciate you working so hard. Uh, is it okay if I do some plugging? Yeah. Of course, of course. It's okay, go ahead. All right. My book, Top 8, How MySpace Changed Music. It's available for pre-order now and will be available on August 15th. You can learn more about it at michaeltetter.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-E-2-D-E-R.com. You can say hello to me there. Uh, If you are in the New York area, I will be at Word Bookstore on August 15th with Rob Sheffield. That's in Brooklyn. And August 17th, I'll be at The Strand with Jeff Rickley of the band Thursday, who uh, features heavily in my book. And on September 14th, the day before Riot Fest, which I cannot wait for, I will be at Chicago's Exile in Bookville with guests to be determined. And on October 11th, in my home st- in my hometown of Orlando, Florida, I will be at Park Avenue CDs with the great writer Kristen Arnett. Hope to see any of you there. Awesome. That was so cool. I didn't know you were from Florida. I'm from Jacksonville. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Well, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the lone New Yorker in the group. <laughs> oh, no. I live in the New York area these days. Yeah. Bob, t- t- can you tell us the name of your town? Just because I love it so much. Before I say this, preface, don't stalk me, people. <laughs> um, Ron Konkoma. Oh, cool. It's so great. I've heard the name. Love it. Thank you guys for being so chill and just letting us hang out the keeping great thank you so much for having us it's wonderful yeah and you always have a play here if you 
if your neckbook comes out, shoot me a note and we'll get something set up for that too. You got it, man. I really appreciate it. Allison, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been so fun. And I love working with you because even though we have different lives and different, you know, upbringings, we can all learn from each other. And that's what this conversation was. Yeah. And I think that talking about things that aren't as familiar to you also makes you appreciate the things that are part of your background and personality that make you who you are. So could we talk about when you told me about this book and the night I told you that I was this punk rock MySpace kid, what were you thinking? Do you remember the moment? Like, Well, it's like you said on the episode. Yes, it's surprising. But at the same time, because you have such a love for pop culture and such an encyclopedic knowledge of it, it's also not as surprising as it would seem that you have so many wonderful different sides to you and parts of your story. And also, I have older sisters. So by the time my space hit, they were teenagers. And when I wasn't on my computer in the in the family room, I was in their room listening to music on their stereo or at their computer. So it was really a part of my life too. Yeah. And now that you mentioned it, I believe this is touched on towards the end of Michael's book that going online was more of an event. Whereas like we're kind of always online now, you know, you and I are both have memories of like going to a specific room and a specific desk or corner or something like going to the computer, you know, or going to the library to go on the, like that, cause that was where you went. Yeah. I, and I remember like just going, I remember when they, my parents realized that I used the computer more than everybody else. So they got me my own computer, and that was a big deal. And that was, like, in August of 05. So that was right in that MySpace kind of realm, too. So, like, and I guess reading the book made me realize how much MySpace did shape who I was like not the social interaction like I was mainly friends with the family but just learning music and coding and all those little intricacies of what made MySpace more than just a message board yeah absolutely it's interesting as a person who didn't have first-hand experience with it to hear what it was like for other people and all of the different functions that it had all in one place. And I bet you, if you talk to another person who had a page, they're probably going to talk about how their page was all blinged out and had all these, you know, flashy things. But that's what was so great. It was basically, it was literally 
the equivalent of when you're in school and cutting out magazine clippings or stickers and putting them on your notebook. <laughs> exactly. Like you know, like it's uniquely you. So I'm so happy that you told me about this book. I was ecstatic to do this. Yeah, it was great to get to be on the podcast with you and with Michael. And again, just to have a space to have cool conversations. I really appreciate that. So the book is available now, as we stated. But where can people find you and all the crazy work you're doing, which seems to be one big feature every day of the week? Well... (laughs) It's not quite that frequent, but thank you. That is very kind. So you, you've heard all about uh, where to find entertainment journalist Michael Tedder, and I am an entertainment journalist as well. You can check my stuff out on Twitter. I usually post it there, at A. McLean Merrill. McLean is M-C-C-L-A-I-N. Merrill is M-E-R-R-I-L-L. Instagram's a little bit simpler. I um, still have a blog. I was more active on it before I was doing some other features, but it's still out there. So my Instagram connects to that, which is at past foot forward. Well, again, this is not the last time that you were coming on this pod. You are such a valued person in our community. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. Like you've been with me through some hard stuff and, whenever we get to like talk but especially when we get to um like collaborate like this it reminds me that there are good people in this world that get what i do and want to work with me and want to collaborate and also just it also helps that we're friends oh yeah like we So, seriously, thank you so much, and I hope to see you on the show again soon. Anytime. So great to be here, Bob. You got it.